International markets are leading the global rally, but will it last? Here's what matters. Live from New York City, I'm Lauren Goodwin, and this is Market Matters from New York Life Investments. In this podcast, we bring you the best insights from across the New York Life Investments platform, because we believe that by sharing perspectives and engaging with you, our listeners, we can all become better investors. Welcome, everybody. It's the week of February 6th, 2023. And last week, we talked about what's driving the recent market rally in the U.S. and how our team sees this rally as a temporary stage of relief, as opposed to being the beginning of a new bull rally. But today, I'm joined by Julia Herman to take those views global. International assets have been on a tear to an even greater degree than the U.S. So, Julia, can you start us off by connecting the dots between what's going on in the U.S. and what's happening globally? Great place to start. That soft landing narrative we discussed last week gained a major leg up after the Fed's meeting on February 1st. The Fed hiked 25 basis points, but the market paid more attention to what Chair Powell said in the press conference on financial conditions. Just a brief pause before we get into what was said. With this term, financial conditions, we and policymakers and the media are referring to the broad monetary policy stance in the economy. That can include not just what the Fed is doing with interest rates and its balance sheet, but also bond yields across the curve, how banks are transmitting information, which speaks to credit creation and market volatility as well. Bingo. Financial conditions are said to be tighter when monetary policy tightens. In that, it's more expensive to borrow money and market conditions tend to be more bearish. Loose financial conditions are a way to describe plentiful liquidity and accommodative policy when the Fed wants to encourage economic activity. A key distinction we should drive home here is that the Fed has a heavy influence on financial conditions, but they're not completely under the Fed's control, as we mentioned, market volatility, etc. So taking that next step forward, then how do we know what financial conditions are? And how did Chair Powell miss the mark in his press conference last week? So a journalist asked him if he was concerned about the fact that financial conditions have eased a bit in the past few months in the U.S. Now, it seems surprising because the Fed has been hiking interest rates dramatically, and we can keep in mind that financial conditions have also tightened dramatically in the past year or so. So this is all relative. But the issue is that Chair Powell didn't seem overly worried. He didn't seem to say that retightening financial conditions was priority number one for the Fed. And of course, because the market's been looking for any hint that the Fed might be starting to slow or pause its pace of monetary policy tightening, any dovish narrative takes this and runs with it. Yep. U.S. equities were up 1% on February 1st, the day of the Fed meeting. Okay, so the reason we just spent so much time talking about financial conditions in the U.S. before applying it to the international environment is because they are a key piece to the global market performance puzzle right now, and namely why price performance and sentiment have turned so bullish on international assets. Let me put a little bit of color on that bullish sentiment that you just mentioned. When we say the bulls are running, the bulls are running. Our baseline, U.S. equities are up 11% for the three months preceding market close on February 2nd last week. 
Okay, so from that base of 11% in the US, let's talk about three month return elsewhere. European stocks up 17%, emerging markets up 20%. And most notably, the MSCI China index is up a staggering 43%. We'll come back to that later. All right, so international equities off to the races, and we're putting together why. So financial conditions had been loosening slightly since October of last year, and this has corresponded with the international rebound. And it's also related to a lot of questions we've been getting lately about the dollar. The dollar functions as a global sentiment barometer a lot of the time in that it can be the clearest way to link U.S. policy to the rest of the world. And after a two-year period of strength, the dollar has lost about 11% ever since last October, right when financial conditions started loosening in the U.S. Regular listeners may remember our episodes about the U.S. dollar last year, where we introduced a framework known as the dollar smile. And go check out those episodes for more about the dollar smile framework. But the general gist is that the dollar is driven by global growth and by liquidity dynamics. So historically, the dollar has tended to strengthen in times of growth contraction. So if growth is going down, dollar is going up. And when liquidity is tight, same thing. And that's what's happening right now. So maybe all we need to do to understand the recent dollar weakness is replace the word liquidity with financial conditions, because there is significant overlap between the two. The market loves to pay attention to changes at the margin. We talked about that last week. And even though financial conditions are far tighter than they were during the pandemic, they have been easing since October. So relatively, operative word, relatively, looser financial conditions feed into a weaker dollar. All right, so there's one big piece of the bullish international thesis puzzle, looser financial conditions corresponding with a weaker dollar. The second big piece is about the economic cycle. So Julia, we discussed this at a high level last week. Yeah, it's, it's a two-pronged approach here. Things are shaping up better than inspected in Europe and China. Europe has had a mild winter that has lessened worries about energy supply, while in China, they've reopened from COVID lockdowns and it's expected to see a consumer rally. Okay, great. So that's one and two elements of the pro-international argument. There's a third element as well, which is the valuation component, which we'll get to as we answer the question we now need to face. How long will this rally in international assets last? Is this a new durable period of international outperformance or is it just a blip on the path to a global recession? And in answering that question, first, I want to give particular credibility to the fundamentals of this European and international rally. Yeah, there is some proof in the pudding there, especially on the European side. First, we have the relief from an expected energy crisis. At one point, we were all quaking in our boots over a potential industrial recession in Europe due to low energy supply. But German auto production is actually up 25% since August per UBS data. A lot of analysts are now actually talking about how Europe might avoid a recession this year, a drastic shift from the fears that it would be Europe dragging down the rest of the global economy. Let's bring in the valuation component then at, at this point. What do you have to say about that? Yeah, European valuations have historically traded at a discount to U.S. equities. So the argument right now is that an investor is getting a better growth outlook than the U.S. for cheaper. Interesting. Well, let's move around the globe a little bit, around the map, and, and go to China. We know that the end of China's zero COVID policies may bring a consumer rebound, but is that the whole explanation for the price action we're seeing? I mean, Julia, you mentioned a 42 or 43% rebound. Is that in US dollar terms? 
Yes, it is. And zero COVID is not the whole story behind that wild performance number. So those returns belong to the MSCI China index. And when it comes to China, the index you're talking about matters immensely because Chinese equities are listed in a huge variety of ways. It's very unique. So quick overview. There's onshore Chinese listings called A shares, the letter A, which correspond to the domestic equity markets in Shanghai and Shenzhen. Then you have H shares, letter H, listed on Hong Kong, and there are many other foreign listings out there with other corresponding letters. Then you have a meaningful amount of ADRs, American Depository Receipts, which allow international names, namely Chinese equity names, to trade on U.S. exchanges and become more accessible to U.S. investors. So I'm not introducing all of this complication for my own amusement here. The biggest difference between MSCI China and the onshore indexes is that MSCI China can include those Hong Kong and U.S. listed shares. The onshore indexes do not. That makes a meaningful difference in what stocks you're referring to in each of those indexes. So we're talking about the largest tech consumer discretionary internet names that U.S. investors are familiar with. Those are the ones that aren't on the onshore exchanges, but are in MSCI China. We can't use their names specifically here, but they include those largest companies in China, and those are what have been rallying the most, far beyond 42%. So Shanghai and Shenzhen are each up 19 and 23% respectively in USD year to date. Nothing shabby, but not 42%. Oh boy, that was a masterclass in investing in China. Incredible insight. And I feel like I need to give you a breather there for just a second. So why don't I tie all of this together? The largest big tech names in China are leading the China aspect of this rally. And those are the ones that had been negatively affected by China's antitrust regulation for the past couple of years. Exactly. So here's where the valuation component comes in for China. MSCI China saw valuations hit multi-year lows in October of 2022. And at that point, price to earnings ratios were at about 10 times. Since then, valuations have recovered to about 16 and a half times. Wow. 16 and a half times price to earnings. So it seems like October was a critical date and turning point coinciding when financial conditions started to loosen, obviously saw some policy changes and some upside risks in international markets as well. So these names are coming off low valuations and years of bearish sentiment, potentially leaving space for a potential dramatic performance improvement. Yeah, and it's also worth a nod here to broader emerging markets. Performance in China tends to spill over into emerging markets as a whole because China's the biggest component of that index. Okay, so now that we've covered what's supporting the price rebound, let's talk about whether it can last, the conditions that might change it. If I had to pick a word, recession. I'm going to start blaming everything on recession. It's cloudy today. It must be a recession. All right. Well, the markets are interpreting any easing up in policy as a bullish thing right now. But recession argument, what if policy has to ease because growth starts slowing meaningfully? Yes, exactly. If that were the case, the market would probably have to change its tune on whether seeing policy easing is good or bad. We say the same thing in the U.S., that if the Fed is reaching a pausing point, it's probably because they are acknowledging that economic growth is starting to roll over. So for now, the market is in a window benefiting from a slower pace of inflation, but it's not yet pricing in the slowing growth or the potential recession scenario. So we'll keep our listeners posted on what that shift might look like.
That brings us to our portfolio pause, a segment of the program where we share an investment idea. And now that we have the specific drivers for Europe and China under our belts, let's talk about allocation. There may be a lot of investors who would like to diversify their investment exposure to the U.S. macroeconomic cycle, which is slowly trending downward. But we've described a lot of intricacies in the international story here today, and folks might be wondering how to gain international exposure while still having a firm sense of exactly what it is they're investing in. Absolutely. And there are a lot of solutions out there that provide international exposure across developed and emerging markets together or separately. That diversification tends to be the easy part. The harder part is that when it comes to return in an investor's pocket in dollar terms, when going international, we have to think about currency impacts. We've discussed how the dollar has seen recent weakness, but we expect this to be temporary as global growth slows, presumably as financial conditions tighten again. But because the timing of any dollar strength or weakness remains vague, hedged or partially hedged strategies may suit investors who'd like some access to international diversification, but without having to take a position on currency movements. Today's been a marathon, but Julia, I want to thank you so much for pounding the pavement with me. Thanks for having me, Lauren. Coming up next, it's a light week for economic data, but earnings season is wrapping up, so we'll be back with our takeaways. That's it for today. We'll be back next week for more Market Matters. In the meantime, please remember to give us a like, follow, or review wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have a question or topic of interest, reach out to us on LinkedIn. You can also follow our views at NewYorkLifeInvestments.com and click the Insights tab. Until next week, I'm Lauren Goodwin. See you next time. Our podcast is produced by Milo Benamats and our music was composed by the fabulous Zach Young. I will now read our disclosures from compliance. The MSCI China Index captures large and mid-cap representation across various geographical listings of Chinese equities, onshore China A shares, Hong Kong listed H shares, and other foreign listings like the American Depository Receipts listed on U.S. exchanges. With 717 constituents, the index covers about 85% of this China equity universe. The Shanghai Stock Exchange Composite Index tracks daily price performance of all A shares and B shares listed on the Shanghai Stock Exchange. The CSI 300 Shanghai Shenzhen Index consists of 300 A shared stocks traded on the Shanghai and Shenzhen exchanges. It is not possible to invest directly in an index. Past performance is no guarantee of future results, which may vary. All investments are subject to market risk and will fluctuate in value. This material represents an assessment of the market environment at a specific date, is subject to change, and is not intended to be a forecast of future events or a guarantee of future results. This information should not be relied upon by the reader as research or investment advice regarding the funds or any issuer or security in particular. The strategies discussed are strictly for illustrative and educational purposes and are not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or adopt any investment strategy. There's no guarantee that any strategies discussed will be effective. This material contains general information only and does not take into account an individual's financial circumstances. This information should not be relied upon as a primary basis for an investment decision. Rather, an assessment should be made as to whether the information is appropriate in individual circumstances circumstances, and consideration should be given to talking to a financial advisor before making an investment decision. New York Life Investments is both a service mark and the common trade name of certain investment advisors affiliated with New York Life Insurance Company. Securities are distributed by Nylife Distributors, LLC, 30 Hudson Street, Jersey City, New Jersey, 07302, a wholly owned subsidiary of New York Life Insurance Company. Nylife Distributors, LLC is a member of FINRA SIPC.